How will new AI systems transform our lives in coming years? Will our jobs in the workplace now be taken over by AI machines? How far will human beings have to alter their identities and even their physical makeup in order to keep up with the Jones 2.0? Does the new breed of chat GBT bots spell the beginning of the end for humanity? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we are finally turning our attention to possibly the greatest revolution in technological advances since the creation of the first atomic bomb, that being in the field of artificial intelligence, a new technology that will soon make life without it as productive as life without computers, will change dramatically the way we live, and we will spend this hour focused on what those changes will potentially look like. Winnipeg-based Hal Sharif and acclaimed Canadian science fiction writer Robert J. Sawyer join me to discuss artificial intelligence, the good, the bad, and the really ugly. On this week's program, The Fourth Industrial Revolution Part 1, the future of AI, the past of Homo sapiens? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 16, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. We attempt to restore balance to the treaties and agreements that secured control for settlers at the expense of Indigenous people and will make the utmost effort to repay for centuries of losses according to a respectful vision. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Since the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the gastroculture war on serving dishes with a Russian name, be it with hint, flavor, or substance, has been total. Hatred of the Kremlin has become bigotry towards the dish, in Madrid, Sergei Skorovatov, himself Ukrainian and an owner of a restaurant called Rasputin, serving both Russian and Ukrainian cuisine, sensed trouble. He ventured into the thorny world of online discussions to clarify the nature of what he was serving, which was considered wise given what has happening to other restaurants serving Russian fare. 
This method of insurance was not foolproof. That comes from the article Dumpling Wars by Dr. Binoy Campmark, posted June 14th. Although I do not fully agree with Henry Wallace's arguments, I find his speeches inspiring and think they offer us great potential at this dangerous moment in history. There is also an argument to be made that another world was possible that did not include the Cold War of the 1950s or the Cold War of 2023. The Second Cold War works on the basic principle that, quote, Cold Wars repeat first as tragedy and again as farce, unquote. The first speech of 1946 was the one that led to President Truman demanding his resignation. The second speech of 1947 was made once he had positioned himself in explicit opposition to the Truman administration. Wallace suggests a, quote, competition of ideas, unquote, for mutual benefit that has strong appeal for us today. That comes from the article, quote, We want peace, the world cries out, unquote, Henry Wallace, by Emmanuel Pastriche, posted June 15th. As a psychologist and longtime psychotherapist, I am convinced that man is good, social, and capable of living together without weapons and war. However, he is psychologically irritated due to his manipulation in family upbringing and by social institutions. Only a manipulated human being is capable of inflicting suffering on his fellow human beings. Wars, terrorist actions, kidnapping of children and renting them to pedophiles, organ trafficking, depopulation programs, displacement, population exchange, falsification of history, and so on and so forth. Inflicting violence and torment on one's fellow human beings or marching off and striking when the state calls to arms is not the result of free will. That comes from the article, Only a manipulated human inflicts suffering on members of the same species by Dr. Rudolf Hansel, posted June 15th. While Carrie's health is fragile, she remains firm in her incisive understanding and analysis of world events committed to national sovereignty and fundamental human rights. She constitutes a powerful voice in the understanding and analysis of U.S. hegemony and the global political economy. Her first book, published in 1970, entitled Silent Surrender, the Multinational Corporation in Canada, predicted with foresight more than half a century ago what is happening today. Quote, First published in 1970, Silent Surrender helped educate a generation of students about a Canadian political economy. Carrie Pollyanni Levitt details the historical background of foreign investments in Canada, their 
acceleration since World War II and the nature of intrusions by multinational corporations into a sovereign state, unquote. That was from the Global Research Update under the headline, Professor Kerry Poliani Levitt, Regaining Canada's Sovereignty, June 14, 2023, We Celebrate Kerry's 100th Birthday, by Kerry Poliani Levitt and Michael Welch, posted June 14. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of ChatGPT? Yes, absolutely, Michael. You know, it's actually a fascinating story. ChatGPT is an AI, or artificial intelligence model, developed by an organization named OpenAI. It was trained using a technique called machine learning, specifically a method called transformer neural networks. Essentially, it's like it's been reading a vast amount of text from the internet to learn how to understand and generate human language. It's a bit like a supercharged version of predictive text on your phone when you text people, but much more advanced. So when did this technology start to come about? Well, OpenAI has been around for a while, but the specific model that ChatGPT is based on, called GPT-4, which is the latest, was first released in 2022, and people started using it a lot in February of this year. Since then, it's been evolving and improving every day. I think it's exciting because it's a testament to how far AI has really come with hundreds of millions of people using it. But remember, it's not perfect. It doesn't understand context in the same way a human does. So there are always areas to improve and grow. And how does it learn? Great question, Michael. It's trained on a vast corpus of text, basically books, websites, and all kinds of written material. The model looks for patterns in this data and uses these to predict what should come next in a sentence. That's why it can sometimes come up with such eerily accurate responses. It's learned from a huge amount of data. It's important to note, though, it doesn't understand the information like you or I would. It's a pattern recognizer, not a conscious being. That's a lot to take in, but quite fascinating. Absolutely, Michael. It's fascinating to see where we're headed with AI technology. We're really in the thick of it, and the applications for this technology seem to be endless. Okay, I think we should just uh, just draw the line here. Uh, actually, what we've been just discussing, that wasn't an actual interview. That was a script we were reading written by artificial intelligence, by chat GBT, GPT. So um, this is the real part of the interview now. And uh, I'm going to be joined by uh, a couple of uh, very distinguished guests. It's going to be a, a very different uh, kind of uh, topic today because... Uh, I'm going to be introducing two, uh, you know, very special guests that uh, you know, are not necessarily that acquainted with uh, the show. Um, but uh, my guests, uh, first, uh, I've got both Cal Sharif, who was just speaking, and I've also got Robert J. Sawyer. And I, I'm just going to take a, a couple of minutes to introduce them both. 
Uh, Cal Sharif is the founder and CEO of Project White Card, a company dedicated to using technology for good. They use game technology for education, and the latest project is all about driver training in BC, uh, where Project White Card is using AI extensively during development. And, and here's the way ChatGPT described it. They're creatively harnessing the power of gaming technology, transforming it into an educational tool. Imagine that, learning while playing. It's a game changer. And their latest endeavor? Well, it's all about making the roads safer in British Columbia. Project White Card is at the forefront using artificial intelligence like never before in their new driver training initiative. It's technology and education colliding in the most exciting way, proving once again, folks, that the future of learning is right here in our grasp. And I will also add, uh, this is me talking, that uh, Cal Sharif is a former classmate of mine going back over 40 years. Oh, and, dear. Yes. And he's also a former programmer at CKUW uh, here uh, back in the 1980s. Um, so it, it's a special delight to have him on the show finally. And also, <clears throat> I'm extremely delighted to have with us Robert J. Sawyer. He's an accomplished science fiction writer, originally from Ottawa, now living in Mississauga, Ontario. He's one of only eight writers in history and, and the only Canadian to receive all three of the World Science Fiction Awards for Best Novel of the Year, uh, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, and the first writer in history to win the Right Lifetime Achievement uh, Aurora Award. He's, uh, he's soon to release his uh, 25th novel, the, the Downloader, and that's not even including his multiple works for short fiction. He's a script writer and a keynote speaker. He's the number one all-time leader in number of award nominations as a science fiction or fantasy novelist. Stephen King is number two. Uh, without question, multiple press organizations have said he is the, the leading Canadian science fiction writer. And uh, so we we're quite pleased to have him on the program to, to tackle the latest tsunami hitting the world right now, that, that being artificial intelligence. This was the main theme running through a trilogy on the topic that he wrote back about 10 years ago. Both my guests are not exactly trained in the field of artificial intelligence, but their fields of interest have kept them up to date with, with the field and, and, and can turn it over to explore what is potentially coming as the field expands. So, so Cal and, and Robert, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Um, <clears throat> Maybe I'll start, I'll start with you, Cal. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about how AI has impacted your work since it was introduced? Well, it's amazingly uh, uh, fast uh, that AI ha has evolved in the last year, less than a year. So I, I started using AI last August, in fact. Um, and at first I was using it to help with my writing. Um, I called it AI because other than simply using a tool like Grammarly to help with my spelling and so on, I'm sure Robert J. Sawyer knows about that one, uh, I started using it to actually author, for example, grant requests. Not the entire grant request, but to give me some framework that was useful. Uh, a lot of what we do uh, is not grants. Some of what we do is grants, but a lot of communication that we do 
has to do with uh, speaking directly to clients or, or bodies of people that are judging our work. So, uh, and then in February, I started using uh, a lot of AI. I have been working on driver training in British Columbia uh, for the last uh, three years. Very lucky to be able to do that out of Winnipeg. And uh, we were chosen by TELUS and BC to take on that work. And we started without any access to AI. But what I found is that AI has really sped up my process of writing, uh, for example, scripts. How does an instructor interact with a driver? What are some of the types of uh, scenarios that an instructor uh, or, or that a driver might encounter on a road? And how would they best be instructed? Now, I don't, now I don't leave the AI as the AI is not uh, is not the ends to those uh, to that to that writing. The AI is sort of like a middle ground or a seed of ideas, and also cleans up your spelling, which is really helpful. I then will pass off uh, full scripts, pages and pages and pages to uh, to subject matter experts for uh, for verification and validation, and uh, that's that's how I've used AI in textual aspects of, of, of what I do. In, in visualization, I use a lot of AI. One of the projects I'm working on is, is something that has to do with large Macs because I keep a, I keep always keep a, um, a hand in my other work, which is to sort of do sort of science fiction works of games uh, that are also educational. And I'm working on a game that has large Macs and I want to see, uh, what kind of mech I might like to depict in my game. So using a written, you know, handwritten um, sort of query uh, in an AI art generator, I was quickly able to generate not 10, not 100, but maybe thousands of sort of images of which I could get closer and closer to what a beautiful looking mech in my game would look like if a mech originated in 1972 and uh, then hand that over to my artist and say, this is where, this is the zone uh, where we'd like to be for this art. So it's uh, literally to be able to do that uh, uh, with a game company, generally, I'll, I'll just use numbers, it generally cost you about uh, a lot. I won't use numbers, a lot. You'd need to have about a hundred people on staff to generate this much kind, this this much art. And now, we're able to do that with 10 uh, of the size of a company that we have 10 to, to uh, 20 staff. So I think, yeah, the tsunami that you spoke about, Michael, is, is, is that, and then if you can harness that technology, uh, that, uh, uh, that I think it's going to be very useful. Okay. Robert J. J. Sawyer, uh, thank you for waiting. Uh, you're, uh, You've uh, written, of course, uh, your your famous uh, trilogy, uh, WWW, uh, Wake, Watch, and Wonder. Uh, all three of them won an Aurora Award. So, you know, you really raised, you know, you took the topic of artificial intelligence and, and raised it to new levels. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, maybe just give us a bit of a rundown of what you came up with back then. And maybe today, as, as Chat GBT, GPT has come out, uh, if uh, that advances your own understanding of the situation, I mean, because everybody that I'm hearing about in, in regular media is saying that it's it's moving a lot faster than than anybody else uh, had come about. They didn't expect things to come along as fast as it has. So, you know, I'll, I'll just let you open it up. Uh, 
So it's not affecting it because I'd like to think I was quite prescient. Wake, Watch, and Wonder, my trilogy about the World Wide Web gaining consciousness. The first volume was published in 2009. So that's 14 years ago. And um, all of us who write science fiction for a living have been saying for quite some time, decades, that the advent of AI is nigh. It's going to be soon. And when it happens, it's going to happen extraordinarily quickly. Werner Vinge, a very fine science fiction writer, as well as a professor of physics and mathematics, now emeritus, retired at uh, University of California, Irvine, uh, was the great uh, first uh, proponent of the term the singularity for this rapid exponential uh, development of artificial intelligence that will leave our ability to understand well, to predict what's going to happen after that point, and even understand what has happened after that point in the dust. And Ray Kurzweil, a um, now um, a uh, futurist with Google, but famously wrote the book, The Singularity is Near, picking up on Vinji's and I.I. Good's um, original predictions in this area, uh, are exactly right that uh it is going to happen soon. It may have already, we may be at that point of the singularity. And if we aren't now, 36 months from now, three years from now, 2026, absolutely the progress that chat GPT has made just since it went public in February of this year, you and I happen to be speaking in June, has been remarkable. It learns every time it interacts with a human being. And it doesn't make the same mistakes twice. Because, oh, yeah, I tried it in February and it did this. Well, try it today in June and it won't do that. It'll do what you want instead. So, yeah, uh, we've been predicting this for a very long time. And it's very frustrating. We feel like Cassandra from Greek mythology, the prophetess who uh, constantly was telling people the future. And she was always right, but nobody would listen to her. And we've been doing the same thing about the advent of AI. There, there was a military application, just like the computers and the internet were uh, were developed as part of uh, you know a, a military state apparatus, and then it, it sort of went off to the to the crowds, and then maybe you know the same application holds for artificial intelligence. So does that in any way? Uh, affect the way the manner in which uh, or the, the nature of artificial intelligence as it's uh, being burned born in some technologies if they're if they start as military technologies you will never even know that they're around so i think that it's true that the origins of chat gpt uh, had investors uh, and it, literally the company is called OpenAI because the idea was that it would be public and it would be open source and that Elon Musk was one of the investors and that it would start as a public, you know, public for good project and would, and I, there was even, uh, there was even uh, the idea that it was going to be a not-for-profit uh, and all that's gone out the window. I, I think that, uh, I think that it certainly changes uh, the essence of what something is if its primary purpose uh, is to uh, kill uh, versus to help. Um, I, I, I use ChatGPT every day and it, it seems to be benign, but uh, then again, uh, any of these technologies could suddenly be used for a military purpose. The thing, the thing that, uh, maybe I'll just throw something um, out there. The thing that worries me is that if you, if you look at what, uh, 
is being said about Boston Dynamics, how the next th the three generations down, the, the robots, if you will, that run around that we have not seen yet are running in a, they run at a blur faster than you can see, right? And this is what, this is what the rumor is. Uh, Elon Musk spreads that rumor as well, but I think it's probably got some merit. Uh, if you combine that with the AI that can think much faster than us, are we, are we looking at a, uh, are we looking at a Fahrenheit 451 situation? Robert will probably have that reference off the top of his head faster. Were they called the, the hounds? I believe that uh, we're chasing people mm. that you've basically got a, a robot that's moving at a blur that's able to hunt down anyone anywhere anytime these technologies are all very great as as long as they're in the hands of people that are uh, uh that can be trusted and that are uh, have good intentions but what technology has really ended up having good intentions even our phones as you know start with the good intentions of connecting us with the World Wide Web and being able to have a conversation with anyone anywhere on the earth, but what they really act as, as a serotonin uh, uh, addiction devices and keep us uh, addicted to our phone. I, I myself struggle with uh, the ADHD sort of qualities that come from being online all day and having my phone in front of my face and, you know, uh, very, very healthy feeling. I have a very healthy feeling today because I spent the last two days camping in the woods with uh, 300 Cub Scouts and I feel very, uh, very, you know, dis I was very disconnected from my phone. But like I said, those technologies start out as good technologies and the World Wide Web starts out as a good technology, but will it stay that way? Or, or is it being harnessed for ill will? So I think it does change. The origins do change whether the technology is going to be good or bad. Absolutely, Mike. You mentioned the internet. Of course, its original name was the ARPA net, and ARPA stood for Advanced Research Projects Agency. We now know that name, uh, that organization under a more transparent name. They put the D in front, which should always have been there. DARPA, the defense, meaning the U.S. Department of Defense, Advanced Research Project Agency, created the internet. And there's no question that it was created as a decentralized structure to leave computer uh, nodes independent of each other so that were there a Soviet first strike, the United States computer infrastructure would not collapse by just, say, taking out the Pentagon mm -hmm. computers and there would be nothing else. So, yeah, the origins of modern um, distributed computing are in the military. And uh, although the mm -hmm. famous uh, AI that we're hearing about now is all from either, you know, OpenAI, ChatGPT, or from Meta, who owns Facebook, or from Google, uh, we would be naive to think that those are the most advanced AIs that currently exist. The United States Department of Defense has a budget that exceeds the budget of any R&D department at any commercial operation. And absolutely does not want there to be a, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Strangelove, um, General Buck Turgeson famously said, we cannot allow a mine shaft gap. Well, we cannot allow a chat gap. We cannot allow an AI gap. And absolutely, the United States military tends to be in the leading AI um, entity on the planet, just as the Russian military does, and just as the Chinese does. So yes, there's definitely 
you know, in science fiction, Isaac Asimov famously uh, put forward his three laws of robotics, the first of which is a robot may not injure a human being. And by a robot, he meant an artificial intelligence, an agent that was acting of its own volition. A robot may not injure a human being or through inaction, that is not acting, allow a human being to come to harm. Well, the full point of the military press to create AI is to kill people, not Americans, but to kill the foe. Uh, and if the foe happens to be civilians, well, the collateral damage is the word that uh, we have for that, right? So yeah, it definitely colors it. Yeah. Way back in uh, 2006, I wrote a guest editorial for the world's top science journal, Science. Uh, they were doing an issue on robot ethics, and they asked me, they were prescient enough to ask a science fiction writer to do the editorial that framed the debate. And I pointed out even back then, 2006, we were using computer-controlled drones to eliminate targets in, uh, you know, in the Middle East. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. We did not embark on this endeavor with peace as the agenda. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You just joined us. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour. My guests today are Cal Sharif, uh, who is with the uh, Project White Card, and uh, the uh, famed Canadian science fiction writer and author Robert J. Sawyer. Who just spoke. Okay, um, I want to look at uh, things like in terms of how it's going to transform our society, our workplace. I think one of the things that we really have to think about is the fact that, uh, you know, what's this going to do to the labor source? I mean, uh, it's, you know, I mean, I just after this last month, you know, it was May Works and, you know, Solidarity Forever and everything like that. But, you know, this technology is so sophisticated. I could see a lot of people losing their jobs as a result of it and, and being replaced. Well, it's interesting. So I, you know, yeah. I, so here's the thing. I struggle with that, right? Because I wonder, you know, when I started this technology, uh, using technology, which was uh, back at the beginning of the internet in 1996, it's basically I was free because I could create uh, web pages and had wonderful jobs at Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and then started my own company. When I when I started everything, it was like I'm going to ride this technology all the way, learn web pages, everything. The world's going to explode. It empowered me, right? My art's out there, you know, because I can use Photoshop. My ideas are out there. Uh, I'm influencing education. I worked with NASA. I just like Robert has, and and I, it, it's an amazing thing, you know. So so. So I wonder if conversely to the point that it may replace us is that maybe it replaces the people that don't use technology. That's, that's, I think there's a counter argument that if you understand how to harness the technology very, very well, then it could actually empower you. I know it's very, it's very um, perhaps, I don't think it's naive. I was going to use that word, but I don't think it is because it's always, technology has always empowered me. It certainly lets us do our job better now, uh, working with clients, delivering a better product. I, I can't say much about the lawyers though. 
And, you know, having have been paid a lot for legal fees over the last 17 years of Project White Card, the ability for me to generate a memorandum of understanding in five minutes with ChatGPT that cost me $20 a month compared to $5,000 for the privilege of uh, having a two-minute conversation on the phone uh, is also empowering to me. You know, I, I think that um, I'm, I'm not really feeling very sorry for the lawyers, but maybe a lot of people don't. Um, so uh, I'll pass it to Robert, though, in case he has thoughts on that. Science fiction is so prescient. You go back to 1967, a Star Trek episode, original series called The Ultimate Computer. And Dr. McCoy says to Captain Kirk, when Captain Kirk is being replaced as the commander of the Enterprise by a computer, we always feel sorry for the other guy when his job is replaced by automation. But when it's you and your job, it's different and it always will be. We always thought, we have in the creative class or those in the white collar class, uh, we always thought it would be the grunt labor that would be replaced by robots, the garbage collectors, you know, uh, would be replaced by machines that would do that. And those people would be free to go on and do uh, you know, jobs that were perhaps more emotionally fulfilling than doing that. But it turns out, in fact, that an artificial brain is easier to build than an artificial arm. So machines that can do white collar work, brain work, are way more powerful and adept right now and cheaper now than the best robot, uh, robotic uh, systems. Boston Dynamics makes a great uh, series of robots, including one named Sawyer that I'm rather fond of being as that's my last name, another one named Baxter uh, that I'm rather fond of, named, I like to argue for my colleague, Stephen Baxter, a fine science fiction writer from the UK. Um, but those machines cost a fortune. There are very few of them. And they still aren't as dexterous as even a clumsy human being like me. But the machines that think can now outthink you, me, anybody. Uh, you know, who knows who the brightest person on the planet is today? We used to often cite Stephen Hawking, who's no longer with us. But whoever it is, an AI can outthink that person already today. Uh, Ken Jennings was defeated a long time ago on Jeopardy by Deep Blue. And he was the best, the G-O-A-T, the GOAT, the greatest of all time Jeopardy player. Yeah. Well, I mean, could we ultimately, like, Going down the the years, uh, are we looking at a, a point where uh, the, the working class, as they put it, could, will be known as the useless class, like on a permanent basis? So the uh, utopian version of this is back in the day in Victorian England, there really were only two classes, the working class and the leisure class. And everybody wanted to be in the leisure class where you had servants and you had money from property or investments that your parents had made or whatever. And you didn't have to work yourself and you spent your days playing croquet or writing poetry or attending salons or whatever. That would be the ideal version that all necessity of producing labor is taken over by artificial intelligence or robotic machines and that we're all free to just enjoy life to its fullest. The dystopian version, however, is, well, that's all well and good, but uh, it ain't going to work out that way. First, a lot of people, myself and many others, take great personal pride, enjoyment, and a huge part of their personal identity from the work they do. You take away from me 
being able to be a science fiction writer. And I'm left with, well, what do I do with my days? Or I can still write it, but nobody will read it because ChatGPT is writing better stuff than I or anyone else can write. So why would they read primitive human-composed science fiction with the odd clumsy sentence and the occasional plot hole when ChatGPT can produce a perfect work of science fiction or mystery or romance or Western or a mashup of them all uh, in the style of Robert J. Sawyer or William Shakespeare or, you know, Chaucer or Homer or, you know, I am a big fan of the play Oedipus Rex by Sophocles, but Sophocles wrote, I think in his lifetime, over 80 plays and only maybe five survived to the present day, the last are lost to antiquity. Why don't I just ask for those other 75 plays? Research everything Sophocles would have known as mythological stories to draw on and give me those plays for free. So yeah, even the creative class may be obviated out of their reason for living. And that's quite dystopian. Also, there's the question of how economically we living lives of leisure will be supported. AI produces all kinds of labor, but doesn't pay into a tax base. Um, Bill Gates said famously a few years ago, every company that eliminates a job by putting a machine in its place, be it a computer or be it a robot, should have to pay into the public coffers a tax equivalent to the income tax that would have been paid by that employee uh, into those public coffers. And that, you know, of course, is a great idea, but which corporation is going to voluntarily do that? And which of our governments, so many of whom are in the hands of lobbyists for those corporations are going to volunteer? We, we can't even get the corporations to pay their fair share of corporate tax let alone are we ever going to get them to, say, voluntarily start paying. Oh, yeah, we put, you know, uh, Bell Canada just let 1,300 employees go uh, yesterday. Uh, we're going to put 1,300 employees' value of income tax into the Canada Revenue Agency coffers. No, Bell's not going to do that. They're building now 120 gigantic AI uh, data centers, you know, that they're... Uh, and they're going to be building 120 more in 2024. Uh, this this is going through. You know, there, there's no way of, of saying no to it in in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I'm wondering now how how we ourselves are going to adapt to all of these things. I mean, do you see somewhere down the line in order to uh, to adapt that uh, maybe some sort of uh, artificial you know, helping us connect with artificial intelligence, we may be forced to, or may have the option uh, to uh, to take on that kind of surgery. I mean, are, are we looking at something that could ultimately alter our own uh, existence as a species? I, I, I just wanted to point out something really, really quickly or, or talk about something quickly. I, I did this thought experiment. And when you combine everything that of like a CRISPR model of the idea that you can generate genetics and that the AI has already mapped all of human proteins that are possible and you combine it with everything else. It's like, uh, you know, I was talking to my cousin the other day, other days, an engineer, and, and it's like, Who's to say that, like, very near future, that the AI isn't just going to come up with a life form? 
I think that it can. If it can detect mm -hmm. human cancers in a way that we can't even see, and it knows all the proteins and all of the deoxyribonucleic acid, I like if AI is going to be that advanced that it's going to generate its own form of human being or transhuman. Uh, I mean, maybe the argument is already lost. I hate to be dismal about it, but I mean, maybe that's it. How far will we go to adapt to this reality? I mean, could we be getting surgery at some point to implant little chips in our brains or in our bodies, uh, maybe, you know, ultimately contorting our own uh, life systems itself? I mean, uh, absolutely. Are, are we turning into a, a species of cyborgs then or what? Cyborgs, which is short for cybernetic organisms, uh, an idea first promulgated in science fiction, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, Elon Musk has a company called Neuralink, and he's developing what he calls the Link, a dime-sized uh, object where they would drill out a size of a dime part of your skull and insert the chip there with uh, many, many, many electrodes going into the brain to boost your cognitive abilities, to allow you to, it's called a, a BCI, brain-computer interface, to allow you to interface directly with all the information on the World Wide Web. Um, and other companies are trying to do the same thing a little less obtrusively with devices that don't require surgical implantation. But absolutely, and, you know, um, it, it's inevitable that it is going to happen. I, my life is infinitely better because many, many uh, decades, year, centuries ago, eyeglasses were invented. My life is hugely better because I have electronic um, hearing aids. And uh, if somebody said to me, you know, that ability you used to have to remember really quickly that has disappeared uh, with age and we want to give you that back. Yeah. Sign me up. I would probably get a neural link. So, yeah, definitely we will adapt, assuming there's still a role for humanity at all. Remember, the single biggest threat to artificial intelligence is us. We represent a threat in various different ways. First, a regulatory threat where we might decide to say, no, you can't do that. We're going to shut it down uh, because, or shut down aspects of it. Well, that's not in AI's interest. Uh, the second threat is the geopolitical threat, which is that Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin decide that things have gotten out of hand or they're being packed into a corner and they set off a nuclear weapon with an electromagnetic pulse which will do way more damage. I mean, the nuclear weapon will do enormous damage to the people at ground zero, but the electromagnetic pulse will damage computing equipment far and wide. So again, AI has a vested interest, if it ever becomes a self-aware, of making sure that pesky humans are not in a position to fight their pesky little wars. It ironically becomes comes full circle from what you said a little while ago, Michael, about the origins of AI being in the military. The military ends up being the biggest threat to the continued existence of AI. It seems as if this is going to strengthen the, the wealthier elites who, who are on top of this, getting all the funding going through, uh, and, and the rest of us are just sort of waiting for it to come along. I mean, are, 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 is this ultimately going to lead to something like uh, you know, going from this form of, of capitalism we have right now to, you know, in, enhancing it to, to ultimately a feudalistic system. Well, I think a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of what goes on with, uh, you, you know, people use, you know, you're using a term called elite and, and you know, certainly 
uh, lawyers belong to that group. I think there's a phase change going on that will change the strata of society. But I think a lot of that society that you speak about already exists and they live in, in, in ways that we and we don't see them. They're out there doing that. Um, I really I really worry about the uh, the future of jobs to uh, I think that the idea of having a, univ a universal basic income is very good. Although, you know, the poor lawyers are going to need to to buy food somehow. Uh, but uh, I also I also think that it might be all of the human race that might be becoming, you know, set, running in second place. This is like what the real worry. This is what the real worry for me is, is that uh, if we're if we're not controlling this, uh, you know, to put to to put on that hat, if we don't control the progress of AI, another country will. And so that you've got an AI, essentially an AI arms race, right? The cliche. But mm. but what will they do with the AI? Will they stop? You know, they haven't stopped at cloning. Will they stop? Will they stop by creating uh, the next the next version of 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 uh, you know uh, of not Homo sapiens, something else? And mm. that already, I you could feel kind of the existential dread when I'm writing and I used to write scripts a year ago and I'm not writing them as much. And it's like, why am I not writing them as much? What's happening is the AI actually better at me at writing. That's what I worry. <laughs> I do actually worry about it because it's like, I'm writing technical stuff, but the AI seems to be better at it. I feel a little bit let down, honestly. Hmm. The, one of the big issues about AI is of a, is opaque. It is, uh, Machine learning uh, neural nets produce outcomes that cannot be audited. We don't know. We know what input we put in and we know what output we get. But in terms of what connections and uh, uh, steps led to that, it's not algorithmic in the sense of an algorithm is a set of instructions that lead to a particular a conclusion. Neural nets are not algorithmic. Neural nets are all kinds of interconnections and they're trained. Uh, by simply, uh, is this the output you wanted? No. Is this closer? A little bit. No. Is this closer? Yeah, you're getting there. Is this it? Hot, cold, that game you play with kids where they're, you've hidden or you're thinking of something in the room and you say hotter, 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 colder, colder, colder. That's how you train the kid. But if you ask the kid, what steps did you take to finally find that I was referring to, you know, the uh, my my uh, iPhone sitting on top of the coffee table is the object I wanted you to find. The kid can't say, well, I went left and you gave me a very emphatic uh, colder and then I went uh, straight ahead and it was sort of a loop. He can't do that. He can't audit it. And we can't audit the decision trees that were used by AI. So AI may end up with what's called perverse instantiation, finding solutions to problems that are perverse from our point of view that we never would have. Uh, wanted them to find that solution. And the solution, how do we optimize the amount of money that the AI makes, uh, which is the problem that Google or any other for-profit organization will have ultimately as one of the goals for its AI, may lead to a perverse instantiation that says, well, number one, we got to make sure the pesky humans don't do anything that interferes with our ability uh, to continue to generate company for uh, money for the company. So these are real possible scenarios. In fact, the book I'm writing now very much deals with AI training humans 
uh, the mm -hmm. the shoe on the other foot scenario, because we've been training AI on everything we've done for everything we want. AI will turn around and very subtly train us for the things that it wants. AI can say, Rob Sawyer, you are right now a flaming, bleeding heart Canadian liberal. But here, I've read everything you've ever written, all my books, all my blog posts, all my Facebook posts, all my tweets, all my emails. Remember, they all, I happen to use Gmail, you might use Yahoo, whatever server you use, go through private sector servers, everything you've ever done, your whole digital footprint. And here's the exact perfect argument that would make you support Pierre Polyver instead of uh, Justin Trudeau in the next Canadian federal election because of this. And here are all the citations that prove that my case is right. Now, those citations might be completely false, just as Donald Trump's claims are often demonstrably false. But they've got the patina of reality. They seem to come from reputable sources, cite the Globe and Mail with a made-up article or whatever. And I go, hmm, and I go into the ballot box and put an X beside a name I never in a million years would have considered voting for otherwise. That's the potential future. I wanted to get onto to a, you know, at least one other aspect of this, and it seems to be the main driver of the current pause they're having. And that's the whole idea that of the possibility, the possibility that this could lead to a, a kind of, of, of human extinction, essentially, where the uh, artificial intelligence gets so profound that they might do things in such a way that, uh, that ultimately leads yeah. to our own termination. Is that a concern that you two have as well? Well, you know, I was speaking earlier about uh, about how the fact that our phones are, uh, you know, have made us addicts, and uh, obviously there's been AI behind uh, what you see all along. I know even right now my Google phone is listening to me. I don't know why I let it listen to me, but it's listening to me. And if I talk about something, I'll see a topic uh, related to that, maybe something I can purchase. But I think that. If the AI is operating at such a deep level, like a deep, deep ocean, that it could potentially motivate the human race to do something just in very, very subtle ways. It's like the reverse of, I put up, I'm creating a brain, uh, I'm, 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 I'm operating in, a, in, an, in an operating room, I'm trying to remove uh, cancerous cells, I use the AI to tell me where they are. I don't know how it did it, but it can tell me and not subject to introspection. And then I remove those cells as well and an actual real case of what's going on right now. Um, I think the AI would be perfectly capable of directing, <laughs> directing the human race. If it, it's not, what is it now, Michael? Last time I checked, I, we didn't look up this number, it was 200 million people within the first month were using ChatGPT. How many hundreds of millions of people does it take for the AI to say, hey, Let's get them to do this or let's get them to do that. I mean, there's so much potential for good, but like I said, is that how it's being used? Is, is there a particular scenario in, in science fiction that this would take either, whether it's the Terminators in uh, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger series or the, the Borgs from Star Trek or... Uh, um, the Matrix, which the is, Matrix. Yeah. yeah. Those are those three standard science fiction scenarios. The three standard science fiction scenarios about... Uh, relationship with AI are the Borg scenario from Star Trek where they absorb us, the Terminator uh, scenario where they uh, eliminate us, and the Matrix scenario where they enslave us. 
in my trilogy, Wake, Watch, and Wonder, which recently won the Machine Intelligence Foundation for Rights and Ethics, the MIFRI Media Award, um, uh, I tried to put that fourth possible thing in the payoff matrix uh, where we and AI find a win-win scenario mm-hmm. together. Uh, and uh, I don't know that that's possible. So I do know that it's possible. I don't know if it's plausible. But if we don't start thinking very seriously about the ways in which we could have a symbiosis with AI and clearly delineate those things that are going to be human endeavors, the arts, creativity, for instance, and those things that we're going to let machines do, uh, finance and, and um, you know, uh, picking up garbage and so forth, uh, we may end up not having a symbiosis. So it's definitely all of those four potentials are possible. We'll be enslaved, we'll be eliminated, we'll be absorbed, lose our individuality. And just maybe if we act really soon now at this inflection point in history, a win-win scenario. The only one that seems highly unlikely, unfortunately, that everybody on the planet says, nope, no more AI, and it stops. Because all it takes is one nation. Japan, North Korea, uh, Russia, you name it, China, to continue AI research, uh, even if those of us, say, in the Western world decide we don't want it, it's still going to happen. So I don't think the Butlerian Jihad uh, is the likely outcome. But the others are all possible. And this, today, 2023, is when it'll be decided whether we come out as equal partners with AI. I don't see any way we're going to be on top, but at least as equal partners or as we get one of those terrible other scenarios, enslaved, absorbed, or eliminated. So if you couple that with the fact, you know, on another front, the AI might be actually developing uh, DNA models and protein models that it could use one day and from a biological point of view, and then a technical point of view, it's got, it's got uh, robots and so on. And then from a psychological point of view, it seems like the threat is pretty, it's pretty real. I mean, I know that the letter that went out estimated the threat of AI was around a 10% uh, threat to the human race. But I, I think it's probably quite higher than that. Michael, is it okay if I ask a question? What would some of the signs be uh, that we're entering a win-win? What do you think that would look like? I know that I feel that I'm winning and that I'm win-winning when I'm, when I'm building better product. Uh, for driver training, that uh, that seems like a win-win. What does winning look like? Because we talked about what losing looks like. We're extinct. <laughs> but what does winning look like? Does it look like Elon Musk's neural link? You know, that he said, we have an output-input-output problem. The only way to solve this is to, uh, is to directly connect uh, computers to our brains. So the biggest thing in AI ethics is what's called the alignment problem making sure that artificial intelligence's ethics align, are parallel with, agree with, congruent with uh, human ethics. Now, there's a lot of debate about what human ethics are. Is uh, abortion a sin or is abortion a woman's right? So it's not all that clear necessarily what universal human ethics are. Uh, Is murder a Mm -hmm. sin? Yeah, except if it's execution by the state, right? Uh, In terms of capital punishment. So we have some thinking to do very quickly about what we want AI to recognize as universal human ethics. But I think that's the number one thing. When we start 
saying right now we have a, a great belief as we well should have for a long time, but it took a long time of coming in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And we have to make sure that AI mm -hmm. shares that belief. One of the reasons that AI was originally put into banking was that bank managers were notorious for not practicing DEI, uh, diversity, um, equity, and inclusion. And instead were routinely denying people of color, particularly African-Americans, home ownership loans or mortgages. So we took the humans out of the loop and started using AIs and specifically told them you cannot use race as a factor. Well, we thought problem solved. Well, again, AI perverse instantiation, what they found was that in the United States, zip codes are a very good predictor of how likely you are to default on your mortgage. And zip codes, thanks to uh, the, the sad truth of uh, ghettos existing in the United States and poor neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods being uh, segregated, also besides on income, being segregated black and white, uh, it turned out to be a perfectly uh, effective proxy for race. And the result was the same, that the AIs were perversely denying people of color homeownership loans or mortgages again, and yet had absolutely not used their skin color as the basis for the decision. So we've got to, you know, ask AI very interesting questions. This is the time to engage chat GPT in Socratic dialogues, to ask it questions and listen to the answers and find out if it's giving answers that make sense to us. And if they don't say, no, 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 that's not the right answer, train them and say the right answer are the answers that preserve human dignity, individuality, liberty, and diversity. And it's up to us, while we still are the ones doing the training, to train our AIs to value those fundamental human virtues. I think we're out of time now, but I really want to thank you both for uh, you sharing your thoughts with our, our listeners. Uh, Cal Sharif and, and uh, Robert Sawyer, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, well, maybe good to have you back on again at some point. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. My absolute pleasure, yeah. Michael. We spoke to Cal Sharif, the head of a technology company called Project White Card and Canadian science fiction author Robert J. Sawyer. The Canada-wide Peace and Justice Network, who are organizing a Canada-wide speaking tour for citizen diplomat Dimitri Muscaris to report back to Canadians about his recent mission of peace to Russia. The title of the tour is Making Peace with Russia, One Handshake at a Time. The tour starts on June 19th. It will be in Winnipeg next Thursday, June 22nd. You can get more details by visiting hamiltoncoalitiontostopthewar.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.